Hello and welcome to the next episode of the ADHD Mums podcast. Today we have something totally new. We are going to do a book review on one of the books that everybody seems to be reading and damning me about, which is The Year I Met My Brain by Matilda Bosley. Welcome to you, Matilda. Hello. Yeah, good to be here. Awesome. So I asked Matilda for her bio yesterday. She said she sent it through and then I realized immediately that there was nothing attached, which I absolutely love. That is the bet. We always speculate about the start of this podcast. It's never smooth. We've actually gone pretty good. We're only eight minutes in and I've Googled my own bio, which is not approved by Matilda. So let's see how she goes. Hearing her own bio back to you, it's always really awkward. So we have here, Matilda Bosley. (laughs) Matilda Bosley's adult ADHD diagnosis was a massive earth shattering event. She was given a prescription, but no idea what ADHD meant for her, her identity, or for her relationships and her future. 12 months of confusion later, journalist Matilda embarked on an epic voyage to figure out what's really happening in the stormy seas of ADHD brain. And she wrote the guide that she wished she'd had. The year I met my brain is the ultimate travel companion for navigating and enjoying life as an ADHD adult. So welcome, Matilda. I thought that was a pretty good overview on you and your book. Congratulations for, one, completing a book with an ADHD brain. What an achievement. Still absolutely not convinced that that is true or real, and I don't know how I did it. So we're just happy to be here. I did love the speculation in the book about how you were in one of the worst places in terms of like trying to get things done, family commitments, it's all happening. You're trying to finish this book off. And I was kind of just sat back and thought, I have no idea how I would do such a large project. What made you, well, obviously what made you write the book was the fact that you didn't have a guide, but lots of us have many ideas, but we don't actually action them. What made you actually get to the point where you were like, I'm going to start writing this and find a publisher? It was actually the other way around, which is I'm not sure I ever would have got it done. If it, if it was, I need to start doing it and then find a publisher. It was that being a journo and sort of chronically online, the publishers Penguin were were sort of vaguely aware and of my writing about ADHD and reached out to me. And then I think, you know, a bit of the whole, like, as a teenager, always wanting to be a writer really kicked in. So I'm like, yes, before like thinking through the consequences, which I do think can be one of the benefits sometimes of the condition of like, oh, if I really sat and thought this through, most of the good things in my life I wouldn't have done. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of negatives that come with with that as well. But yeah, it really sort of pulled through my inability to think ahead in this case. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that you said that so well in your book because it was, you talked about the ocean brain and then the land brain. Mm. And I read that, I was like, I really want to talk to my kids about that because the ocean brain is, you know, as you describe in the book, the ADHD brain and it's, you know, fraught with danger and waves and, you know, sharks and everything's happening. Whereas, you know, the land is kind of like, I liked your analogy around seeing the hill, anticipating it. I yeah. thought that was really clever the way that you did that. And that idea of uh, what I think a lot of people don't realise about the ADHD brand and like when it's often, <laughs> I guess, and, and obviously this is all sort of, you know, massive generalisations as everything kind of has to be to a certain degree with metaphors. But a lot of the, the sort of idea is like, okay, well, why didn't you prepare for that? Why didn't you, you know, okay, you need to get here. Why can't you just go faster? And if you think about, you know, if, if we're thinking about, like, I guess the neurotypical experience being the land brain, it's, it's sort of like, it's not always like easy to run, 
But a lot of the time you ultimately can make the decision about whether you're going to run or not, or it's based on the amount of sort of, I guess, energy you have. Whereas, yeah, for me, productivity was always much more of like, let's see what the tides are doing today. Let's see how the currents are going. And then that not me, what I've eventually come to learn is like, doesn't mean that I just can't get anywhere, you know, no matter what, it just is sort of a matter of working, I guess, with the conditions you're given on that day and using that to navigate rather than sort of just, yeah, like rowing against the tide because people are like, well, you've got the, you're up, you've got the energy, you're at work. Why can't you just like get this done? Or well, you're at school, you're in class. Why can't you just listen? Which I think, yeah, is that, that aspect of like, it's not easy all the time for anyone, but it's often achievable in a quite straightforward way for people who are neurotypical that that isn't that easy to explain to other people, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think ADHD people are known as well for being quite funny. They've always got a good story. That's what I noticed with them. And I thought with the ocean brain, it's kind of like an adventure, you know, just to get from one place to the next to go to the shop sometimes for me is an adventure because someone will call me, I'll go off track, I'll go somewhere else, I'll come home, I've got nothing I'm supposed to get. I've had this great chat with someone and then I'm like, what just happened then to that just hour? But yet when I come home, I chat to my husband, he's like, that was really interesting. And both of us forget that we were supposed to get something for dinner. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, that is like the, I feel like growing up, I always had the the thing of, oh, that's, that's one for the memoir. You know, like whenever something bad or like weird would happen, I'm like, oh, that's one for the memoir. And then I actually found myself in a pay, place to put all of it. So that's a lot of the reason throughout the book, there's a lot of sort of like little stories and detours and kind of interludes between chapters of just like, silly things that have happened to me that I've managed to, I guess, find a way to relate to the ADHD experience, which it turns out wasn't that hard because I'm like, oh, all these stories have nothing to do with ADHD. Then I like properly learn about ADHD. I'm like, oh, that was a symptom actually in retrospect. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, it's confronting and validating all at the same time. One of my favourite parts of your book, because I feel like I know a lot about ADHD and going into reading your book, I thought, I wonder if I'm going to learn something or if this is a guide for someone who doesn't know anything. Holy shit, I learned a lot. It was awesome. I thought the way that you articulated some of the massive issues was really awesome, particularly on this podcast. You can imagine what this is full of. We have thousands and thousands of women with ADHD. Generally, there's probably about 85% of us who are between kind of 30 and 45. Most of us have kids, other people that that listen. We do have a few husbands, Mm. which is always funny. But We always go back to the same thing around mental load, highly stressed, feeling like we are taking on a lot of the load. And we go back to this, I suppose we swing from like, let's be more compassionate to ourselves. We have a lot on to our husbands suck. They need to fucking do more to it's all of our kids fault. The fact we've got ADHD kids, it's the school's fault. And then we swing to try and be more positive. And then there's this whole fucking emotional roller coaster. But we come back to the same point all the time, which I thought you said so well in the bad wife chapter around, I suppose, the women being having the expectations. And can you explain a little bit more about to the listeners? Because I thought it was fucking awesome about how teenagers come in and and then men come in and and how that works. Because fuck, that blew my mind. Yeah. And thank you. That's actually very reassuring because me, like, a 25-year-old writing being like, I understand married and family life, so I'm glad it hit the mark. But oh, yeah, no, it was, got it. 
it was taught. Absolutely. What, what I really, what really struck me about ADHD, and I think it was a benefit of the discussion about mental load and emotional labor and stuff coming up, almost kind of developing online at the same time that I was really at the start of doing a lot of the research for the book, was the way that to a certain degree, ADHD is not easy for anyone. And I think like that's important to make from the start, but it melds with society's expectations for men better than it does for women. Because, you know, you leave, okay, it's two undiagnosed people. There's a man and a woman. You, they both, you know, they've just finished university. They've just moved out of home. And the guy's, you know, in this like messy share house and there's no food in the fridge and he's never able to do a proper shop and all his, you know, clothes are in a pile. And that's kind of just like the bachelor lifestyle and like maybe there's a bit of leeway for the you know 20 year old woman doing the same thing but it's still like a bit like oh really god she's spending a lot like on uber eats like what you know there's a little bit of leeway then all of a sudden by the time anyone's getting to the point of being like they need to get their act together for the man they chances are if they're heterosexual are now in a relationship potentially cohabitating potentially married to statistically a woman who does not have ADHD and all of a sudden okay well like you know they're both that have grown up in families where the woman takes on a lot of this labor subconsciously you know this this is not you know even the the best sort of feminist ally men and and women we both have to work against this kind of this sort of societal norm and pressure of, you know, okay, well, she's going to do the full shop and actually she's had a bit more experience cooking. So it really makes sense for her to be doing laundry and actually sorry for doing the cooking and, you know, maybe the laundry. And when they have kids like, well, yeah, I mean, of course she's going to be packing the lunches each day. And there's a lot of these aspects where all of a sudden that man has received the kind of the best possible support services for someone with ADHD, which is, a wife, but then the woman gets married and, again, the same thing happens where there's sort of this expectation that she'd be doing that and maybe, yeah, she would be doing the cooking and all of a sudden she's having to get the kids to school and she's constantly forgetting the notes and she can't keep the house clean and she can't even remember to do the chores herself, you know, let alone even taking on that mental load of delegating the tasks to her husband and she's failing at being a homemaker and yeah ADHD to a certain degree kind of can make you a shitty homemaker but that is only a crime for one side of the jet and obviously this is a very like cis normative view but you know if we're thinking about stereotypes being a bad homemaker is only a crime for women and it is this transgression about like the woman's role as a carer and, you know, caring for everyone else and then quietly finding the place to look after themselves all the time. And I mean, it really kind of does raise the question for me when we think about ADHD as something that is biological, but also very situational, you know, like there's time, you know, on a gap year, the fact that you have ADHD might no longer be a like, life-changing disability for that period and then when you start work and you have kids and all of that it is again so you think about there's been all these studies on boys growing up and okay all okay 80 percent of them no longer have ADHD by the time they're you know 30 and it's like how much of that is genuine biological 
the condition just fading away and how much is of that is them having a wife genuinely and it's something I reflected a lot on because my partner is so supportive and he's very you know neat and ordered and thinks everything through and he's very happy not just to do his half but do a lot of the stuff for me as well and honestly that's how I did the book like you know in and, I, and I've said this before, which is like I got lucky in having a wife. You know what I mean? That 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 my that Anthony, my partner, sort of takes that a lot of that role for me. And yeah, a lot of it is about me wanting to be better and help him out more. But you know, at the end of the day, if it really came to it, I know I have that support. And you know, it's it's kind of a tough thing to even talk about like oh you know you see people with ADHD being successful and whatnot and it's sort of like oh how do you do it and it's like I have a really good boyfriend like he's genuinely so much of it sorry that was an extraordinarily long answer but I could talk for a million years about it oh no I loved it my husband calls me the dumbest genius he's ever met because I've got such a specific skill set and anything outside that I'm completely useless so you know, you do have to mask over. And, you know, I've, I've always had the goal to make enough money to have a cleaner and have a support system and, you know, be able to get a meal delivery service because I'm like, that's that's actually what I need as opposed to what I would like. It's actually a need for me because I can't seem to figure out a lot of that. I sometimes wonder how aggressively different my life would also be if I just, like, had an assistant you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like I need to push oh. through enough to be able to get an assistant. And then it's, oh, everything's all up from there, baby. That's what I mean. It's like your goal when you have ADHD is like to be able to afford to cook or be able to afford, you know, to get meal delivery or a cleaner or a laundry service. Like that becomes then my goal. One thing that I think that you said so well is let's just say, for an example, that 80% of men, you know, are cured of ADHD by the time they're 30, apparently, right? This is, we're just talking, you know, we're not talking about full research scientists. We're talking about apparently that's what happens. But as you said, most of them, if we talk about, you know, people that are, are straight and they're, you know, we're talking a very specific group, if they are straight and they have a wife who does all of those things or they're not and they have someone who's very capable, then on the flip side, all the woman gets to 30 is she gets two three independents right plus a husband who may or may not have ADHD as well who's possibly been living in as you described it like a share house that who knows what he's been doing it's all fun and games and ha 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 and then all she gets is a significant quadruple of responsibilities and then suddenly she's looking at a diagnosis of ADHD and then everyone's out there going well these TikTok videos they're just creating people having ADHD well, actually, I think stress has a shitload to do with it because I didn't really see a lot of my symptoms until I hit 35 and I had three kids under five and a husband because I was kind of getting through. So yeah. I do think that's part of the gender bias. Do you, do you agree on that? Oh, totally. And also when I when I said the 80%, that is half pulling it out my ass just from memory. That's that's from a while ago. I think it's it, we the updated studies, everyone's much more okay. aware that it's much closer to half-half if not. A, a lot of people but yeah and there's two elements to that as well I think which is yeah that that aspect of yeah women almost ha like the fact that I'm so appreciative of my partner the fact that women basically have to win if if they're dating men have to win the lottery not just to double their ADHD 
by being in a relationship. And that is an awful state of play. Whereas men sort of chances are like if if I could like describe the perfect support system for ADHD, like if the government could, you know, cut lunch, give me everything I need, most of what I would be describing is the roles of a traditional, like the traditional gender roles of a wife. And but I also think what's really interesting, the more and more we think about ADHD as a lifelong condition, because like previously when I talk about it, the studies of they test someone when they're a kid and then take, you know, one day of their life when they're 25 or 30 and test them again and say, oh, well, this many people were cured of it, quote unquote. But when they do studies where, okay, you take someone when you're a kid and then you test them when they're 25 and then when they're 30 and when they're 35 and when they're 40 and when they're 45, what we see is that a huge, huge majority of people dip above and below that diagnostic threshold because you have to remember like in the DSM-5 to be diagnosed with ADHD for it to be a disorder it has to be negatively impacting your life you can have all of the symptoms but if they are not making a significant if they're not like significantly reducing quality of life it's not technically a disorder in the way that we define disorder so it makes sense that situationally people might drift in and out of of I guess, the diagnosable range of ADHD. So it makes perfect sense that, yeah, a lot of women find like, okay, well, I grew up, I had this school structure, I went through university, had that structure, even at work when I was just looking after myself, I could keep things above water. Now I've got kids and I'm trying to work full time and I'm doing this and I'm supporting a partner as well. Yeah, (laughs) it totally makes sense that, yeah, okay, perhaps some of the subclinical symptoms or reflections suddenly are going to burst through into that much more diagnosable territory. And I think that's that's a lot of what we're starting to see. And and, and it is so unfortunate that we, that yeah, the, the TikTok videos and stuff do so much good, but it has had this unfortunate effect of people sort of, I guess, trivialising the condition or being like, it's just a trend, it's just this, everyone's seeing these videos and getting these ideas and it's like, no, we just were missing the vast majority of people for the vast majority of time. Like it's just twice as common as a redhead. So for however many redheads, you know, double it. And that's what how many ADHD adults you probably know. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a rare condition. It's not surprising that it seems like it's everywhere. Oh, absolutely. And I think as well, you made a great point about your upbringing having a big impact. So if you were somebody who maybe had a bit more of a wealthy upbringing, maybe they had the wife, the mum, the mum was at home. Maybe she was, you know, packing your lunch for you, making sure you had your bag, helping you with your homework every afternoon, picking you straight up from school, very involved with your with your teachers in your classroom. If you had that kind of support system versus a child that didn't have that, that maybe had parents that worked full time or weren't available and the child was left to their own devices which one would be more likely to be diagnosed? Again, I agree with your book that the second one that is lacking all of that scaffolding. Yeah, and which is one of the really unfortunate ways that ADHD contribute, well, untreated ADHD, ADHD kind of as we currently deal with in society as well, contributes to the cycle of poverty because it's hereditary. So you're already, you know, if, 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 so it, it's likely that ADHD parents will have ADHD, well, not like, it's, it's a higher likelihood we'll have ADHD kids. And then there aren't the support services. So yeah, perhaps the underlying kind of way their brain works tips into 
negatively impacting their life significantly, then you go to schools where there's less resources, there's less kind of room for, you know, picking up the kids who are falling a bit behind and helping out and potentially less resources in terms of getting kids diagnosed. And what's really then awful is this is where like race pays, plays such a huge part in it because if you have like this kid who's struggling you know, in any school, but especially a school that's maybe under-resourced and just barely keeping their head above water, what often happens, unfortunately, is that you can either send the kid down that, okay, they need help, let's get them the support services, let's get them this, let's get them a diagnosis, let's get them, you know, and, and send them on that track, or it's this kid is just a troublemaker and they're just bad and they don't want to learn and so let's punish them and give them detention and then expel them and then they can't keep a job and then they end up in the criminal justice system as an extreme example of that pathway. And poverty plays a big factor in which pathway you get down. Race also plays a huge factor and this is where we see entrenched racism once again ADHD acts as an accelerant for pretty much every other societal form of discrimination, ADHD accelerates that and makes it worse. And so that is then why we end up seeing that ADHD does tend to be somewhat more prevalent in low socioeconomic communities. And unfortunately, it has that way of almost generation by generation compounding those effects, which is why it's so frustrating when we only ever, and like governmentally and societally, only ever talk about ADHD in terms of what it does to the classroom. But it's like, this is so much broader than the classroom. This is so much broader than even individual people's health and well-being. We're talking about a significant factor into all of the injustices that we feel that we have in society. ADHD does play a part in that. And that's what's kind of so unfortunate about it and why it genuinely should be such a higher priority. I I totally agree. I want to ask you a big question that someone asked me the other day on a podcast, and it's really played in my mind, the question and the answer. And just because you're so in this space, I'd love to know your thoughts on it. We were talking about stress and ADHD. We were talking about how I was talking about the benefits of medication. I take medication, massive benefits. Two years ago, I would have said, oh, I would never medicate one of my children. Now, I would say, yes, I've seen the benefits. I can see where it works. I see it can be appropriate. Obviously, very personal decision. And someone asked me the question, whether I thought as many people would need to be medicated if the life, if life that we're living was less stressful, less fast-paced, and we had less on. And my response was, yes, I think if I had less on and I had less kids and I had less to do and less work, I probably wouldn't necessarily need the medication. But it's such a hard answer. I was wondering, do you think the fast-pacedness of life has created a lot of this as well? It's 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 complicated for me, not because I think the answer is complicated. I think the answer is yes. But I do, I guess I sometimes worry that, 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 that the way we talk about that is often and therefore medications shouldn't be used and something like that. But, like, I sort of think about, okay, well, before widespread literacy was a thing, dyslexia wasn't really a thing, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be 
treating kids with dyslexia and helping them out because this is the situation we live in now, you know, before when everyone was sort of just, you know, eating from the farm, you know, potentially there's a whole lot of, you know, physical conditions as well that wouldn't have been such a thing that are caused by modern day life. It doesn't mean that we don't treat them and we don't medicate them and we don't help people living in the situation that they are living in succeed as much as possible. And it is that thing where it's like, yeah, I, I really, really wish we could fundamentally change the way we treat society, fundamentally change the way we treat education, which, by the way, 200 years ago when we were like first, or sorry, not 200 years ago, whatever, 1900, however long ago that was, 123 years ago, when they sort of first laid out, it wasn't called ADHD at the time, but the condition that now we know as ADHD, it was actually noted there that it was exacerbated by the fact that, you know, the British education system plays little mind to the individual, you know, needs of the child and the uniformity of education. So it's not something that's totally new. What I would say is I worry that when we only talk about the need for environmental change, I think it's often used as as part of an anti-medication rhetoric, but it's sort of like, okay, raise the red flag, you know, raise the the revolutionary flags with me, like, like, let's do an uprising. If not, if you're not willing to, if we're not going to do that, don't condemn me now or children now to a less successful, happy, healthy, and significantly shorter life than they deserve. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I guess, you know, in an ideal world, we would have a way that perhaps medication wouldn't even be necessary. However, I think it's so often posited as like, well, it's society's problem. And I'm like, okay, but I'm still facing the consequences. And then as well, there's certain things that, you know, which is, I guess, when we think about like the biosocial view of disability, where I reckon there's a huge amount of ADHD that societal changes could fix for me. There is a huge proportion of this condition, out of the proportion of the condition that is a disability, there's a huge section of it that could be wiped away with societal changes. There's also elements that I think would be disadvantage, would disadvantage anyone in any situation, like the predisposition towards substance abuse, the fact that it makes it more dangerous for people to drive cars, you know, more likely to die in car accidents. And we know medication helps that and reduces those risks. So I think, I, I guess, I, I really, yeah, I subscribe to the idea that a lot of it is social. I guess I, I do fear that, you know, there are elements that I don't think are social. And also, I guess it upsets me when that's used as a combatant to medication, when people then aren't willing to do the hard work required. You know, it's like, this is, that's, in the long term, decades plan, amazing. Let's rip up everything from the roots. Let's start again. Let's create a society that works for us. Until then, get the get the fuck away from my medication. Just let me let me let me take my medication. Oh my god. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And I think the complexity and was the thing that's done my head in over, you know, the last kind of 24, 48 hours where I've been like, it it is exactly the same as you. It is yes. The answer is yes but it's so complicated and I don't want to minimise the impact on everybody today who has to live and the kids who have to live in such a fast-paced environment because what are we going to do, pack everybody up and go out to a farm? Like we're going to section people off and go, well, those people over there, they're not going to be able to cope. 
So we're just going to put them over there. I mean, we, we, that's just a laughable thing to say, but it is so complex. And I agree with you when you finally get diagnosed and you get access to some medication and someone makes a comment that you don't need it. It's like, what is that? Yeah. And I think that's the, such a frustrating thing about ADHD is how politicized every element of it is, and especially around the medication, which is, you know, genuinely at the core of it, potentially just that it unfortunately had a similar name to methamphetamine. And because of that, because of that, we now freak out about it when it's the most effective psychological medication in human history, just genuinely, is so safe, is so, actually protects people from substance abuse rather than increases it in some way. And we're so afraid around it. And I, and and it means that there's definitely conversations that, like, I wish I could be having more, like, about the societal stuff, about, you know, oh, could this be a tool that, you know, rich private schools are using to get some kids ahead or, like, special commendations? Like, I'd love to be able to have those conversations. We cannot because that immediately just jumps to, and therefore ADHD is fake and it's overdiagnosed and the dr- drugs are dangerous and, you know, and it's it, – yeah, it's like there's so many conversations I want to have. It feels like there's all these bat- frustratingly obvious battles that we're having to fight before we can, I guess, have a sensible conversation about those, like, nuanced issues, which frustrates me, yeah, to no end. Yeah, I hear you. We have those conversations a lot on this podcast, you know, even down to you'll probably have to do this all the time if you go to pick up your medication at the pharmacy and I never know when it's due. And I still don't understand Mm. how you know it's due. I don't know, right? No one ever tells me when it's due. I get the script. I'm usually out. I fill the script. I don't really know. And then I have to just kind of like go past the pharmacy multiple times until I and and wonder if it's due and then go in there and then they usually tell you, this is a controlled substance. You shouldn't be here yet. You only got one 20 days ago. And it's like, mate, I don't even know what day it is. I don't know how many I've got left. I'm just like trying to get ahead here of what I know I need to do. And then they give you this very small window of like five days before you run out that you have to go there and it's this like criminal chat that you have to have and you're like, mate, I'm just walking past the pharmacy. I don't know what the day is. Yeah, and it's so fr- The last script I had, I had three repeats left on it because I don't take my medication on weekends generally. I generally take it d- during the weekdays and so I don't fill it quite as regularly as like the 30 days and then all of a sudden, okay, I've managed to get three scripts out of this instead of six and now it's been six months and because of that it's done even though clearly I'm not abusing or diverting this substance because I can't even remember to take it given evidence by the fact that I have three repeats left if anything doctors should be worrying about me undertaking and yet okay well no now it's back to the doctors now it's if you're lucky or back to the psychiatrist and here's an extra hundred bucks and here's you know all of this extra stuff and it is so frustrating and then you just think about it where there's all of this so much logistics around it and it's a 14 month wait because you have to see a psychiatrist you're like lucky you have to get the right one you do all this you have to go back every two times you have to sit there as they call the government and ask for permission to give you the exact same prescription you've had for three years and then someone you know who knows nothing about you gets to like tick it off and all of this and like it's still not uncommon you know and after all of that it's not curbed entirely diversion of any medications because people still are able to take 
Dexies and as party drugs and stuff like that. And, you know, it's very frustrating for me that people with ADHD prescriptions will divert because it makes it harder for all of us. But it's like, clearly your plan is not working and yet you are actually putting a bunch of people in a situation where they are now more likely to have drug dependence because they do not have the medication which actually prevents substance dependence, which we know that stimulant medication does. I'm sorry, this is a whole rant I go on all the time, but it just feels like ADHD has been caught up in this sort of war on drugs kind of failed government plan that we've been going on for decades. And it's really unfortunate because there's so many people who just don't even bother trying to get a diagnosis who would be really benefited from it because it's so expensive. It's so logistically difficult. Like the best way to be able to treat your ADHD is not have ADHD. So you can remember to fill out all the paperwork and get your meds on time. It's so frustrating. Oh, it is. And look, it's not neuro-friendly. I get on the same rant constantly because I say you finally get the diagnosis. You have to fight through, well, I personally did, five or six appointments to try and find the right dose, which was mainly me problem solving and him sitting there doing not much. And then to get this script that I should be so grateful to have, then I have to battle the pharmacy, it feels like. And then I'm trying to explain to them, if you could just tell me when it's due, I will be able to just come back on that day. And when you, by the time you have that conversation with someone who's nice enough to take a moment without my kids destroying the store, right, then they usually give me an app that I don't know how to use and I can't figure that out. And then they'll say something like, oh, yeah, cool, it's due on this day. But then the next time I still don't know. So then I go back again and I feel like I'm under this criminal lens and I'm like, I'm the least likely person to be addicted because I don't even know what day it is and, and I don't remember to take them. But you know, it's just this constant battle to get what you need to live, which shits me. And once again, it's this hard for us as as white women. Like imagine how anyone with with additional layers of, I guess, social bias against them struggle to do this. Like if you're a person of colour out in an outer suburb, how much scrutiny and stuff there is for that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, look, aside from the cost, the fact that, you know, for example, Vyvanse, if you're not, if you're not um, prescribed or you're not diagnosed before you're 18 or something, you know, you have to pay full rate. It's ridiculous. A lot of, you have a whole family of ADHD people, that's like $500 a month. Who can afford that? And, and there is, that, that was one time that, that Greg Hunt pulled through, I guess, when he, I think he did, he put, there's certain doses of Vyvanse that is now in the coalition government they they put on the PBS, but most of the medications aren't. And, and, you know, for all this talk about like, oh, everyone's on stimulants, the two non-stimulant medication of amoxetine and guamfacine, from memory, you have to have been prescribed before 18 in order to have a PBS subsidy. So you're just making it more expensive for people. And it's like, if you're so worried about stimulants, at least make the non-stimulant medication affordable. Oh, my God. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know what I loved in your book as well? I loved how you were talking about that you weren't allowed to make any more appointments yourself at the doctor. And I was like, that is such a barrier for anyone getting any health. Like any, because that's happened to me as well. I went to a specialist. I was late three times. Then the reception lady kept giving me a dressing gown like I was a small child about telling me about how to arrive on time and, you know, how important it was every single time. And I was just like, oh my God, like how, like, it's not my fault. You don't send me any reminders. There's so many barriers. I think when you have ADHD that I don't feel like I understood. Yeah. And that was, 
I think the fact that I've mentioned, I mean, I realized when I was reading through it, I'm like, oh, I've mentioned the doctor's appointment thing a lot. But I think that kind of hurts so much. Yeah, being told as like a 20-year-old, yeah, you're not even, I've missed a couple of appointments and now it's like I can't be trusted to make appointments in advance. I've been put on a special list where I can only make appointments on the day because I can't be trusted. And just think about like this doctor that I've seen for years and years and years and and watched me grow up to a certain extent that they didn't see that and look any further, that there was just this assumption of they're untrustworthy. Like I kind of feel like shouldn't being put on that list be a sign to potentially ask some probing questions in the ADHD direction, you know, like and that way that, yeah, and I think that's kind of why I've mentioned it so much as that personal thing of being like, oh, this was a very direct way in which, yeah, the the medical professionals that you have no choice but to trust and put so much dependence and 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 responsibility. They have so much responsibility for your health. Like the fact that they didn't look further and and I don't know, I just think about like that should have been a moment that could have made my life so much different three years earlier. And and it was it was passed over. Yeah. Anyway, that's just in the terms of like the, the underlying oh. grief that everyone goes through post-diagnosis. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of like could have, should have, would have. You know, my little brother took dexamphetamine next to me whilst I took, you know, heavy antidepressants, which didn't work. And, you know, there's that could have, would have, should have if I could have put my finger into the wrong tablet box as a young child, like as a 14-year-old, you know, I would have gone, oh, wow, that actually made a real difference. I wonder what that was. You know, there's that just that could have, would have, should have, things have been different. But I understand what you're meaning because I still have a dream and it may not be in my lifetime, that the world could be a bit more inclusive. Like, for example, if you make a doctor's appointment or a specialist appointment, it'd be great if the online option could be how many reminders do you want? Do you want it via text? Because everything's systematized. You don't have to expect the receptionist to physically call you. You know, you could they could be reminder options, particularly at psychiatrists or places that are going to be heavy on the ADHD mental health. Why isn't there some reminders? And, you know, with the pharmacy, why can't they send you a text for particular substances? Why can't you tick and say, can you send me a text reminder when I'm due? How many days before? Because otherwise you have to physically do everything yourself. And then, you know, I think self-esteem is a real problem there because you feel like I can't even turn up to an appointment. I'm getting dressed down by this receptionist person. Again, how embarrassing. Yeah, and it's and we know the effect that having those dressing downs and being told off and all that genuinely causes people to not seek out healthcare they need. Like this is, I mean, a slight tangent, but we know in terms of with people like heavier weight people, because they're constantly being told, oh, for everything they ever ask, the doctor's like, you need to lose some weight. It ends up that they don't go to doctors for stuff they need. And we know that that is the case. And, you know, it might not be as in your face, when it comes to ADHD, but there is those things of punishing people. I guess I'm just always shocked by society's willingness to just believe that you don't care or you're hopeless or you're just not responsible and never like people's willingness to believe that people aren't acting in good faith. Like I, I wonder what life would be like if we just assumed that everyone was acting in good faith and trying their best all the time. And when they fall flat, it might be that, something is happening and I, I I genuinely like and that was such a big part of with ADHD of this I, I actually saw this after 
the book was already in print, which I, I saw this TikTok and it just has stayed with me so much of someone saying that their doctor said to them once, they're like, no, if, if you were lazy, you'd be having fun. Like you would be enjoying it if you were just being lazy. And that sort of just changed my like whole, I was like, oh my God, yeah, of course. Because, you know, and deconstructing, and I do talk about it a bit in terms of deconstructing the idea of like laziness or thoughtlessness or selfishness as we think about it. But yeah, I guess it is always that thing of, yeah, why are we just so willing to believe that, you know, people who are ADHD are just hopeless rather than looking for like what's maybe the root cause here? Absolutely. And I think one last point before I let you go, Matilda, that I loved so much was when you talked about the profound resilience that ADHD people have. I think for ADHD mums, often genetically, we are gifted the beautiful gift, right? As if we don't have enough fucking on, we get two or three, one ADHD child as well, right? So not only do we get the the extra kids to look after that is solely sometimes on us, but also we get kids that are, you know, 30% less likely or their brain is developed, sorry, 30% less. So they are delayed, right? So you get children that do take longer to toilet train. They possibly do take longer to do self-care, get themselves ready for school, remember things, right? So we've also got children that are probably developmentally not where they we thought they would be. So a few people have sent in me and said, said like, why do we get this? Because we are the women who are already up against it, right? Why do we then get children that are that just that touch harder to to look after? And I actually wrote back recently and I loved the part in your book about how there is no one more resilient than an ADHD mama because you know, what you've already been through to get to this place and then you've given your, these these children and your profound love for your children overrides anything, of course it does. But I love the way that you said the words profound resilience. I thought that was just so well done. Thank you. Yeah, it is something that I was thinking about because it did come to that, like I, I wanted to have a chapter and, and I was very conscious in terms of putting it after I had done all the doom and gloom about all the genuine, like urgent societal needs for change about the elements of ADHD that are not purely a disability and the things about, because like I'm not necessarily in a position where if I could snap my fingers and not have ADHD tomorrow, you know, there's definitely some days that I'd do it. That's not, but that's not how I feel most of the time and sort of coming around and thinking about that and thinking about what the way ADHD has shaped my life and also to a certain degree letting go of, feeling like ADHD is like the little demon on your shoulder, like something attaching, like it is imbued in every cell of my body, you know, like there's no me plus the ADHD. There's no me without it in that way as well. And one of these, I guess this isn't, you know, there's things that I think are very core in terms of, you know, creativity and having this broad attentional style and being able to notice things in a way that, you know, other people wouldn't necessarily, like I think there's kind of a lot to be said about having, you know, one person with ADHD and one person with autism on every team project. Like I think there's a, there would be a huge amount of benefit from that just in terms of diversity of thinking. But one of the, one of the things that I guess isn't so much directly related to the biology of it all is, is that, yeah, there is this sense of resilience and this sense of, oh, it's always felt like, you know, man, people are saying like, oh, it always felt like life was just a bit harder for me. And what the ADHD diagnosis does is be like, oh, funny enough, it was actually, which is so legitimizing as well. But there is a sense of resilience that build up and the ability that I have to make a mistake and 
keep on going and like and just oh that happened you know let's power through and you know and I think there's like obviously a huge amount of sensitivity and and trigger points for me in terms of things I'm very sensitive about because it's stuff that all through my life I'm being constantly told like do better in this do better in this like in school and and you know society at large but I think there is I think I'm also tough in a way that I wouldn't be and I think it's hard to break me down to feel like there's you know no spirit left because like you do confront so much more and also just like as a weird one kind of a relief to be able to forget things sometimes like I and I talk about this in the book which is that I think and something that my mum would say to me a lot growing up is that like she'd never met someone who could sort of brush off a bad day as well as I could and to a certain degree it's because I've moved on (laughs) you know my mind had moved on from that but like that is a benefit as well like there's a certain amount of hardship and awfulness that we can sequester up and and keep powering through in the way that we need to and obviously there is a need to go back and reflect on that and deal with that and to think about the grief and stuff like that but I know the amount of curveballs I've been thrown that I don't think other people would have been able to go like let's you know keep on charging on and and I think that is has been like a really like a really profound advantage that I've had in my life in a lot of ways basically like being forgetful is great sometimes (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think my husband and I always have this running joke. He's like, did you put sugar in the coffee? And literally, I never know. And now I just say to him, babe, like, I'll never know. Stop asking me. I don't know. Put your, if, you want a, if you want a coffee made by me, run the gauntlet. I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, who knows? And he's just he just runs the gauntlet every time now. And, and I know that, that, like, this is me now just bringing up something new. But there's also that element of like such a big part of my like discovery has been like finding the battles that I can't be bothered fighting, you know, like whatever. It actually doesn't matter when, you know, when we like get to the pearly gates, like no one's going to be judging on whether like you can remember whether you put sugar in the coffee or whether you like left the clothes in the washing machine too long and had to run an extra wash. You know, there's some things that are have real consequences. There's some things that are just conveniences that society has managed to trick us into thinking are a moral, decide whether you're a moral person or not. And it's sort of like, I don't know, if I forget to do that, if the room's a bit messy, if the dinner is a bit late, like there's some stuff where it's like maybe ADHD just gets to win that one and I can put my energy towards, you know, the things that I prioritise really well. This does feel now like someone speaking who doesn't have kids. I'm assuming it's a bit more complicated than that when you do. But I do think there is like such power in just being like... Oh, I agree with you. I agree. I actually really agree with you because I think dropping the perfectionism, which I think you're talking about, you know, this this idea that we all have to be the perfect mother and the perfect woman, you know, whether you have kids or not, you have to have perfect house, perfect body and hair and, you know, you know, all the eye, you know, the eyelash extensions and the, the teeth and the boobs and the, everybody needs to have now, which I have no understanding of how people have the time to coordinate all of those beauty appointments just quietly. But I think as well, there's something empowering about, like I walked into a parent interview the other day and I was like, look, FYI, I have ADHD. I don't know when library day is. I don't understand any of this shit that you've been sending out. Because I I mean, I'm a swearer. I'm like, look, I don't get it. You're going to have to actually show me physically in this classroom what book goes where, what day is what. Sending me an email with a long PDF for each different kid with all the different requirements is not going to work for me. 
And I think you're right about dropping the perfectionism of like printing it all out and trying to figure it out. I'm like, look, I, I say to the teachers, just give me one thing. I am one Bob, one job Bob. That's all I've got in me. If it's readers, uh, don't give me all of the stuff. I don't know. And, you know, I think there's an element of just, you know, kind of succumbing to it and just picking one or two things to try and do because if we try and do all of them, it's it's impossible. Yeah. And, yeah, really having to ask yourself, like, is this harming me or someone else? And if it's not a genuine, yeah, like if you're not, if you're not crossing a genuine moral boundary, you can, I need to stop just doing hand gestures because it's you. a podcast. I'm just shrugging. If you know, like, it, uh, is it the end of the world? Because there's some things that you're just allowed to be bad at and that's very liberating. I agree. It's like, I just give myself a 15 minute window with school drop off. It's like, I, I'm, I'm just getting there within 15 minutes. So let's just take the pressure off. But look, Matilda, thank you so much. I, this has been such a great interview. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to share? I mean, don't ask me that because I'll start. Uh, but no, this has been really fantastic. And I'm glad that, yeah, I, it's, it's, I'm so happy to see the amount of, I don't know, it's been fantastic. And it's been, it's been awesome to, I guess, know that the weird sort of tangents I'm going on in my own brain have actually resonated with people in any way, shape or form. So I'm really appreciative of it. Oh, absolutely. And I think the validation that you receive from reading the book, I personally did. So if you don't know which one it is, it's called The Year I Met My Brain by Matilda Bosley. I reckon go ahead and get it. It's a great guide. I feel like I know most about ADHD. Like I seem like I know a lot. However, this book definitely gives a different perspective. The other part I really like about it is it's very today. It talks about TikTok and all the current trends. It's not textbooky where, you know, I suppose it's written for like a 30-year gamut so you know you kind of don't get all the specifics of today's culture I love the way that it kind of talks about now today what's actually happening in Australia which you don't usually get from a book if I'm honest so that part about it I really liked thank you so much and there's also little pictures the whole way through which was a big part of my requirements there is and an audiobook if like me there you're is. incapable of reading a book i wrote a book easier than i've read one so i was absolutely very... and i listened to everything on a 1.2 speed and i think sometimes you know that's that's the way to go but look thank you so much matilda if you'd like to reach out to her i've got all of the links into the episode if you love the episode please send me a message or give me a review on spotify it would be awesome thank you so much for your time matilda thank you so much it's been so lovely 